It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This is the first of three episodes based on our interview with Sarah Shulman on July 7, 2020. Sarah Shulman is the author of novels, nonfiction books, plays, and movies. Her most recent works are The Cosmopolitans, which was picked as one of the best books of 2016 by Publishers Weekly, and a nonfiction book, Conflict is Not Abuse, Overstating Harm, Community Responsibility, and the Duty of Repair. A working playwright, Shulman's productions include Carson McCullers, Manic Flight Reaction, and the theatrical adaptation of Isaac Singer's Enemies, a love story. As a screenwriter and co-screenwriter, her films include The Owls, Mommy is Coming, and Jason and Shirley. She is co-producer with Jim Hubbard of his feature documentary United in Anger, A History of Act Up. As a journalist, her essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, and Interview. Sarah has won a Guggenheim Fellowship in Playwriting, a Fulbright in Judaic Studies, two American Library Association Book Awards, and is the 2009 recipient of the Kessler Prize for Sustained Contribution to LGBT Studies. She is Distinguished Professor at the City University of New York, College of Staten Island, and a Fellow of the New York Institute of the Humanities at New York University. A member of the Advisory Board of Jewish Voice for Peace, Sarah is Faculty Advisor to Students for Justice in Palestine at the College of Staten Island. She lives in New York. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Well, so it's been almost four years since you published White Writer, your piece on Carson McCullers in The New Yorker. In that piece, you address the subject of cultural appropriation and hold up Carson McCullers as a model for contemporary writers who, as you put it, wish to be artistically engaged, but who simultaneously do not want to recreate cultural dominance in their work. Have recent events made you revisit what you said in that piece? That is, um, has it made you change your perspective at all? Has it made you want to double down on what you said? You know, how do you feel about it right now? No, I think it's reinforced my feelings that when white writers are depicting black characters, or when anyone from a dominant position is depicting a person who has fewer rights than they do, your number one responsibility is when a reader who is like that character reads your work, they have to feel that it's plausible. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that's the standard. Yeah. And if that reader rejects your representation, then you have to go home and rethink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the funny thing is, how can you know? I mean, that's... that's Well, you know, you can ask people to read. I mean, I've been writing characters of color since my first book, which was in 1984. And it took me many, many years to get deeper, uh, more complex characterizations. I I shudder when I look back at some of my early work. Yeah. You know, and reading... Particularly, one of the things about Carson is that she writes scenes in which there are no white people in the room. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's the hardest thing to do. Right. As soon right. as the white person walks in the room, the dynamic is affected. 
So, you know, when I realized that that's what she was doing and when it was something that I very much wanted to be able to do, the first step is to read works by people of color so that you're seeing how people represent themselves. And then if you're, if you're lucky enough to ask writers who are from those communities to look at your work and give you feedback. Now I had written a novel called Rat Bohemia that represented a gay man dying of AIDS. Mm -hmm. uh, and that novel came out in 94 during the epicenter of the AIDS crisis. And I had many gay people, uh, gay men with HIV and AIDS reading that work and giving me feedback. So this has been something that, you know, I think is essential. You're not going to be able to just conjure it out of your heart. Right. Well, um, and yet, isn't that what McCullers did? Yes. And that's the, that's the magic about her. Yeah. You know, that when you look at the wide range of who she represented, I mean, she had Jewish characters, she has a Filipino gay man, she had deaf people, she has a dwarf. You know, she was, she's been able to fully inhabit people who uh, were never represented before. Right. You know, and that's the great mystery about her. Yeah. The only yeah. other writer I know who's able to do that is Carol Phillips you know, uh, the, yeah, yeah. Um, from St. Kitts. He's someone who can inhabit any kind of person, but it's very, very rare. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting you um, mentioning the, the conversations between two black characters where there's no white person there or uh, any number of black characters where there's no white uh, person there. And when we had Natalia uh, Tomeskin, we were interviewing her just last week. Um, she said she said about the McCullers book, Hardest Lonely Hunter, that she was amazed at Carson's depiction of that. And just like Hilton Alls, uh, we've discussed that, how he, he finds some fault with The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. He's a big fan of McCullers and uh, loves her work in general, but had found some things uh, that he thought were amiss, uh, unintentionally racist. Um, and, you know, Natalia said, yeah, I mean, you can you could probably make a list of little things that uh, you're not sure she got that exactly right. But what she said was, that she felt that what she does get right is uh, Dr. Copeland's rage, hmm. that that feeling of rage in African-Americans is something that McCullers, you know, really nailed. Well, also the generational conflicts about Marxism, about respectability politics, you know, the discussions inside the family, you know, that, that they're so detailed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, as you say, it is uh, pretty incredible. I interviewed Suzanne Vega on stage last October and asked her about your piece, uh, which she had read. And uh, Carlos Duz and I talked about it in episode one uh, of this podcast, and he actually had it handy for the interview and read a passage from it. And I think we all agree that you make a convincing case for McCullers serving as a good model for contemporary writers. But of course, we would think that, wouldn't we? Because we're McCullers fans. And okay. <laughs> so I'm wondering, uh, what was the response you got to that piece when it first came out? I was very positive uh, from all kinds of people, um, including the writer Nell Painter, who is one of the black scholars who initiated whiteness studies. Mm -hmm. She gave me the thumbs up and, you know, I got a lot of wonderful responses. Of course, I was also responding to Lionel Shriver's arguments right, right. that white, she was arguing that white writers should be able to do whatever they want with any kind of account, without any kind of accountability. With, and I 
highly disagree with her. So yeah. that was really the motive for the for the piece in the first place. Yeah, well, and you quote some of those other writers in the early going, responding to that very idea. So, uh, yeah, I thought your piece was very balanced in that uh, in that respect, for for lack of a better word. Zadie Smith published a piece in the New York Review of Books. Your piece was published in October of 2016. In October of 2019, this past October, Zadie Smith published an essay in the New York Review of Books called Fascinated to Presume and Defensive Fiction. I don't know if you saw that. No. Uh, it's really a, a long, thoroughgoing, nuanced discussion of the topic of cultural appropriation, which is a term in itself that she calls into question and saying that the language itself, she feels may be part of the problem. Um, she she has some other really interesting uh, possible terms that we could use for it. But I wanted to read a passage from it and get your reaction to it, if that's okay. Sure. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's one paragraph I'll, I'll read here. It says, re-examine all you have been told, Whitman tells us, and dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Full disclosure, what insults my soul is the idea popular in the culture just now and presented in widely variant degrees of complexity that we can and should write only about people who are fundamentally like us, racially, sexually, genetically, nationally, politically, personally, that only an intimate, authorial, autobiographical connection with a character can be the rightful basis of a fiction. I do not believe that. I could not have written a single one of my books if I did. But I feel no sense of triumph in my apostasy. It might well be that we simply don't want or need novels like mine anymore, or any of the kinds of fictions that, in order to exist, must fundamentally disagree with the new theory of quote-unquote likeness. It may be that the whole category of what we used to call fiction is becoming lost to us, and if enough people turn from the concept of fiction as it was once understood, then fighting this transformation will be like going to war against the neologism impactful or mourning the loss of the modal verb shall. As it is with language, so it goes with culture. What is not used or wanted dies. What is needed blooms and spreads, which I think is kind of an amazing thing for her to say there at the end, you know, arguing that maybe fiction is going to wither away. Or maybe she's defiantly really arguing that if you think that, you're mistaken. Um, so I don't know. What's your what's your feeling about that? What's your reaction well, to that? Well, the key word there is maybe. I mean, yeah. people have been predicting the, the death of the novel for a long time. But, you know, not everyone should be writing any character that they wish. I mean, as a lesbian, I see lesbian characters that are horrific, yeah. you know, constantly in very successful works that are never questioned. And it's very, very frustrating. You know, and when I was writing about the AIDS crisis, I was writing it as witness fiction. And, um, you know, I was trying to capture the, the language of people who are dying. So there's all different kinds of motives and objectives in representing people that are not yourself. And some of them are just dominance. You know, there's a certain kind of arrogance. There's a lot of writers that I would not want to see them even try to, you know, inhabit people who are too far from them because they're so protected that they're, they're unable to universalize to somebody with less power. Yeah, it's true. Um, 
when you th- when you think about this, I mean, if you carry this out to an extreme, right, and you and you think about well, according to the apparently the the people who who uh, she says el- elsewhere in that piece, by the way, uh, write what you know has become stay in your lane, and uh, it just seems like um, it's difficult to write fiction, any fiction. It seems like to me. Um, where you don't have characters who are in some way unlike yourself. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Well, I mean, you know, the, this kind of Northeast heterosexual white upper middle class literature that has dominated the American scene for a very long time has simply replicated its own story ad nauseum, right? To great yeah. reward. And now we're stepping away from that. And that's fantastic. That's what we need to be doing. Yeah. This week's reading comes from The Theater, The Vision Shared, by Carson McCullers. The function of the artist is to execute his own indigenous vision, and having done that, to keep faith with this vision. At the risk of sounding pontifical, I use the words artist and vision because of the sake of accuracy and to differentiate between the professional writers who are concerned with different aims. Unfortunately, it must be recognized that the artist is threatened by multiple pressures in the commercial world of publishers, producers, editors, or magazines. The publisher says, this character must not die and the book should end on upbeat. Or the producer wants phony dramatics. Or friends and onlookers suggest this or that alternative. The professional writer may accede to these demands and concentrate on the ball and the bleachers. But once a creative writer is convinced of his own intentions, he must protect his work from alien persuasion. It is often a solitary position. We are afraid when we feel ourselves alone. And there is another special fear that torments the Creator when he is too long assailed. For the parallel function of a work of art is to be communicable. Of what value is a creation that cannot be shared? The vision that blazes in a madman's eye is valueless to us. So when the artist finds a creation rejected, There is the fear that his own mind has retreated to a solitary, uncommunicable state. I believe that this communication is often dependent on time, for it is difficult for many to catch the tune of something new. I think of James Joyce's long, embattled years against publishers, prudery, and finally international piracy, or we can think of Proust's Jovian patience and faith in the magnitude of his own labors. Sometimes communication comes too late for the part of the artist that is mortal. Poe died before he saw his vision shared, before retreating into his madness. Nietzsche cried out in a letter to Cosima Wagner, if there were only two in the world to understand me. For all artists realized that the vision is valueless unless it can be shared. At the same time, any form of art 
can only develop by means of single mutations by individual creators. If only traditional conventions are used, an art will die, and the widening of an art form is bound to seem strange at first and awkward. Any growing thing must go through awkward stages. The creator who is misunderstood because of his breach of convention may say to himself, I seem strange to you, but anyway, I am alive. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's Weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music used during this week's reading comes from Symphonic Dances from West Side Story by Leonard Bernstein. It was recorded by the CSU Wind Ensemble on April 27th of 2017 under the direction of Dr. Jamie Nix, courtesy of the Schwab School of Music. The reader for this week's episode was Susie Parker DeVoe. She read The Theater, The Vision Shared from the Library of America's The Collected Works of Carson McCullers.